Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. The delicate script of the letter's handwriting belied its sinister topic. Directed to a coroner, the message talked of suspected murder. Want Dan Stott's body taken up, the letter read. Postmortem examination made, content stomach analyzed, inquest held, find out cause of death, take charge medicine purchased for Stott last Saturday. The note's signature, a Dr. Cram, suggested a man of medicine was its author. At first, the coroner on the receiving end of this message thought it was ridiculous. Dan Stott had died during an epileptic fit, one of the countless fits he'd had in his lifetime. Usually the fit subsided, but this one didn't. While the death was unfortunate, it was by no means mysterious. But the letters didn't stop. This doctor, whose name turned out to be Cream, not Cram, the misspelling of which eventually served as a clue for investigators, was adamant that Stott died of strychnine poisoning and that the pharmacy which filled his most recent prescription was to blame. Investigators finally acquiesced and did some digging. It turned out that Dan Stott indeed had strychnine in his system, and the pharmacist who'd provided his meds had received letters threatening to expose him as a callous killer. There was something confusing, however. Both the blackmail notes and the tip letters sent to the coroner were written by the same hand. Instead of casting suspicion onto the pharmacist, Dr. Thomas Neal Cream had finally outed himself as a Victorian-era serial killer whose eventual conviction would set legal precedent that would be cited in courts worldwide for decades to come. Nothing in Thomas Cream's early years suggests he would become one of the most infamous killers of his day. He was born in Glasgow, Scotland in 1850 as the oldest of eight children born to William Cream and Mary Elder, When he was about four, the family crossed the Great Pond to reach Canada, where Thomas was highly regarded by just about anyone who knew the family, and not in a passive, he just didn't seem to cause trouble kind of way. Crane was the son of a wealthy timber merchant in Quebec City, Uh, grew up in a privileged background, church going, (laughs) taught Sunday school, sang in his church choir. That's Dean Job, author of the book, The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream, The Hunt for a Victorian-Era Serial Killer. For a while, Thomas worked alongside his father as a shipbuilder, though the work sadly dried up after an unfortunate fire that handicapped the country's shipbuilding industry. When Thomas shifted his focus from ships to medicine, it seemed a wise choice for the oldest son of a wealthy, respected family. He was from a wealthy family, lots of money to send him to the finest medical school in Canada. 
That school was called the McGill Medical School in Montreal. When Cream arrived, he was a legit adult who had never been in trouble before in his life. In a lot of stories we explore on Crimes of the Centuries, there's usually something telltale, at least in hindsight, pointing to problems with our eventual killers. But that doesn't seem to be the case with Cream. Or maybe if there were tells, his family successfully covered them up to an amazing degree. As in, even after his name became infamous worldwide, there weren't people coming forward from his earliest years to say, yeah, I always knew he was a bad seed. He had detractors, to be sure, but those mostly came from his days in medical school and beyond. He was in his mid-20s and something happened. At this distance, it's difficult to know. But you see over time, his hatred of women intensified, perhaps because he was engaged to a young woman soon after he graduated from uh, McGill, and she became pregnant. I'll correct the passive voice there. Cream impregnated her. She didn't just magically become pregnant. Her name was Flora Brooks, and she was the daughter of Lyman Brooks, a businessman who ran the Brooks House, considered the best hotel in Waterloo. Flora and Thomas met in the spring of 1876 when Flora was 23 and Thomas nearly 26. He told her he intended to marry her. Now, this was the Victorian era when rules about courtship were pretty strict. So as Job writes in his book, the two weren't supposed to see each other without a chaperone, but it seems they figured out a way. In September, Flora fell horribly ill. Her family doctor examined her and broke scandalous news to her father. She'd been pregnant and was ill from an abortion that Cream had conducted. Abortions were illegal in Canada, but as a medical student, Cream would have been taught how to perform one and had access to the necessary instruments and or drugs. But he was also inexperienced because doctors in training didn't get much hands-on experience back in the day, and this abortion was nearly fatal. Lyman Brooks was naturally furious and in a terrible position. If he went after Cream criminally, he risked ruining his daughter's reputation and condemning her to a disreputable life. In retrospect, probably the decent thing to do would have been to turn him in. That would have ended his career pretty early because he could have been charged convicted of, uh, of the abortion. Instead, they forced him to marry their daughter. Lyman gathered some policemen, went to Montreal, where Cream was staying, and insisted that he come back the 60 miles to Waterloo and marry Flora. Cream didn't have much of a choice. He reportedly said he was happy to do it, that it had been his intention all along to marry Flora anyway. But his behavior after the shotgun wedding suggests otherwise. Literally the day after the nuptials, Cream left Canada for London to supposedly finish his medical studies. He never saw his new wife again. Unfortunately for her, though, that doesn't mean the two didn't stay in touch. But we'll talk about that in a bit. As Job said, something happened during the med school portion of Cream's life, though there's never been a clear explanation of what that something was. What we do know is that Cream's mother had died when he was entering adulthood, so just before he started med school. His mother died when he was 19. That's old enough that it shouldn't have had a, you know, it's not like he was really young at the time, but he was very devoted to his mother. And by all accounts, it was a horrible lingering illness and death. 
and he was really badly affected by it. His adoration for his mother didn't translate to other women, whom it seems he saw in black and white terms, that whole Madonna horror complex we've seen in other cases. He began frequenting sex workers in med school and carrying around with him lewd illustrations that others found concerning. But the author Job thinks it was the forced marriage to Flora Brooks that perhaps triggered Cream's darkest impulses. I wonder if that somehow started to snowball into a more general hatred of women because there's no no question because of the way he targeted women that uh, that he had this burning hatred of women. Abandoning his wife, Cream arrived in London in October of 1876. He'd gotten a degree from McGill, the Montreal school, but a lot of that schooling had been hands-off. He got more hands-on experience at St. Thomas's Hospital, one of the city's oldest and most revered. Not two decades earlier, famed nurse Florence Nightingale had established a nursing school as part of the hospital. Doctors training at St. Thomas would have spent a good deal of time learning about... Formulating their own medicines. That was very much a part of a doctor's training. I think today doctors would understand what's in medication, but they actually compounded medicine and dispensed it. Doctors of the era made their own tinctures and ointments and salves and elixirs, and a number of those concoctions had ingredients that sound crazy to us today, like arsenic and strychnine, which I learned while researching this episode is sometimes pronounced strychnine by people smarter and classier than I. At the time these poisons were used, they were typically included in minuscule doses. Well, in trace amounts, strychnine was, at the time, had therapeutic value. It doesn't now, but in very trace amounts, it was used as a muscle stimulant. In a lethal dose, of course, it it almost makes the the body uh, uh, uncontrollable muscle spasms like a runaway train but uh, it could also be a muscle stimulant. So he knew all about strychnine, and uh, he knew what a lethal dose was. He also knew how and where to get the drug, which by the late 1800s had caused enough horrific deaths to be regulated. Strychnine poisoning, by all accounts, is one of the most painful and cruelest deaths you can imagine. It's not like arsenic, which stops the heart in a way that can be mistaken as natural cardiac arrest. Strychnine attacks the muscles, causing violent spasms that come and go. People stricken with it have fits that subside, making them think maybe they'll be okay. But then the fits come on again even stronger, so by the time they die, they had known they were dying. Sometimes the agony was extended long enough that a doctor had time to arrive, But the doctor was useless. The only benefit to this prolonged torture was the fact that in between the violent spasms, the patient typically was more or less normal, allowing them to share information about what had happened leading up to the spasms. Anyway, because strychnine was so deadly, everyday people weren't supposed to be able to buy it. You had to be a doctor. Pharmacists were supposed to check a registry of licensed physicians before dispensing any narcotic or poison, and if your name wasn't on that list, you weren't supposed to have your request filled. This wasn't much of an obstacle for Cream, though, because he was a doctor. 
Granted, he still wasn't on the list of approved physicians in London, but he easily persuaded a pharmacist to look past that and fill his orders because he looked and acted the part. By all accounts, his bedside manner was impeccable, even if his personal behavior raised some eyebrows. Included in that behavior was, of course, his indulgence in sex workers, but also in his pursuits of other women, too. Twice, he seemed to launch into proper courtships of women in London who didn't know he was already married. Both times, his efforts were thwarted because word got back to Flora that her husband was trying to woo someone else. She and Cream wrote letters back and forth, and included in his notes to his missus were pills that he assured her would help her health. She began taking them without telling anyone else, and she quickly fell quite sick. When she told her father and doctor that she'd been taking medicine sent to her by her husband, they insisted she stop taking it. And while her health improved, she never seemed to fully recover. She died the next year. She was only 24. Her headstone reads, The Wife of Dr. Cream. She clung to the respectability that that gave her, even though uh, her doctor later did not report this, but later admitted to Scotland Yard that he suspected Cream had been shipping poison medicine to her that she had taken. I'm confident, given the evidence, that this was his first victim. She was nowhere near his last. After Thomas Cream's studies were finished in London, he tried to get licensed there, but failed. He tried again in Scotland, and after two sets of tests, passed. This was in 1878, the year after Flora's death. Cream would return to a different London, as in London, Canada, to set up his first medical practice. Within a year of his launch, a young girl named Jessie Bennett went to a privy behind Bennett's fancy store run by her parents. When she opened the door to the outhouse, she found a woman seated, slumped and unresponsive. A doctor named James Niven estimated she'd been dead for a few hours, and based on the chloroform found in a bottle nearby, he suspected she'd been poisoned. That she had raw skin on her nose and cheeks suggested that someone had forcibly held the chemical to her face until she died. The woman's name was Catherine Gardner, though she went by Kitty. People who knew her said she hadn't been feeling well in recent weeks, and Dr. Niven's autopsy uncovered why. She was about eight weeks pregnant. Given the stigma attached to being unmarried and pregnant, some assumed that maybe Kitty had killed herself with the chloroform, but Dr. Niven and others testified at the inquest that this wasn't possible. She would have passed out before inhaling enough to kill her, much less to burn her skin. The last time anyone saw Kitty alive, she was walking toward the office of Dr. Cream, who eventually admitted that he had treated Kitty for minor ailments before confirming for her that she was pregnant in April 1879. He testified, quote, She offered me $100 to make her right. I said I would not touch her for 1000 She cried in my office and said she would poison herself. I said I could do nothing for her, end quote. Now, heads up that I'm about to throw a lot of info at you because in a rather involved and convoluted turn of events, a maid at a nearby hotel who knew Kitty well came forward with the most far-fetched tale involving Dr. Cream. 
This woman said that the father of Kitty's child was just some rando named Johnson, but that Cream had suggested Kitty seduce a rich guy named William Burl so that she could accuse Burl of being her already conceived baby's father and then blackmail him, and Cream promised he'd back up her paternity claim and the two could split whatever they managed to get Burl to pay. The inquest panel pretty much ignored that claim, but they did agree that Kitty had been murdered. They just didn't know who did it. It was determined that the chloroform had been, quote, administered to her by some person or persons to us unknown, end quote. Cream was a prime suspect, but no one was ever charged in Kitty's death. The cloud of suspicion that hung over the doctor was enough to run him out of London, though. He set up shop in Chicago and quickly found himself in trouble again when he performs a surgery on a woman who uh, dies, watches the operation. The woman killed was named Marianne Faulkner. He actually stands trial at that point. Now, again, he's almost been caught once. He was a prime suspect. Stands trial, but his father has the money to buy him the best of legal representation. Uh, a lawyer also known to bribe juries, although there's no direct evidence of that. But whatever, by whatever means, Creams is acquitted of that crime. So at this point, Cream has been suspected of murder by his late wife's family, was run out of practice in London for being embroiled in Kitty Gardner's death, and has stood trial for killing Faulkner during an operation. Still, he was allowed to keep practicing medicine. Then two more women died in his care. Alice Montgomery and Ellen Stack. If police had paid attention to these deaths, they might have noticed what Job calls a strange M.O. emerging. He starts accusing druggists of botching his prescriptions, putting too much strychnine in, deflects the blame to them, starts threatening blackmail. Of course, he didn't do this overtly. He signed fake names to the blackmail letters. But his efforts to obfuscate were sloppy and likely could have been flushed out at the time if only those women's deaths had been seriously investigated. But they weren't, because Cream had made a habit of choosing marginalized women as his victims. No one worried too much about what had happened to them. Next, Dr. Cream struck up a relationship with a woman named Julia Stott, who had a better reputation than the other women he generally surrounded himself with. Julia was married to a man 24 years her senior. That man, Daniel Stott, had suffered with epilepsy much of his life and took medication to calm his seizures. He'd become a patient of Dr. Cream's, but he lived a good hour away and was a busy man, so he typically sent Julia into the city to pick up his medication. One day, in June of 1881, Julia handed him his medicine, which he dutifully swallowed. Fifteen minutes later, he was doubled over in pain. In court testimony later, Julia described, quote, his upper lip was drawn back and his eyes half out of his head, end quote. These weren't like his usual seizures. Daniel announced he was dying. Minutes later, he was gone. Doctors didn't deem it suspicious because he was 61 years old and they assumed he'd finally had a seizure that medication couldn't curb, But then the coroner began getting letters in an ornate handwriting that suggested Daniel's medication had been faulty. The coroner found this odd, but dismissed the first couple of letters as hoaxes. A few days later, a state's attorney got another letter, this time signed by Dr. Thomas N. Cream, who said he was Daniel Stott's physician and he suspected his patient had been poisoned with strychnine. Cream wrote that Stott, quote, 
was not suffering from any disease that would carry him off so suddenly, end quote. Still, Cream's concerns were dismissed, so he angrily threatened to alert the local newspapers. He was positive Stott had been murdered, Cream wrote, and he even suggested an easy way to test his theory. If Stott's medicine had been retained, a dose could be given to a cat or a dog, and if he was right, the poor animal would die a hideous death. Luckily, we have better tests nowadays and don't need to murder animals to test for poisons. Dr. Frank Whitman, the Boone County coroner, did finally acquiesce and gave a spoonful of Stott's leftover medicine to a dog who suffered 25 minutes of sheer agony before finally dying. While Cream had insisted that the pharmacist who had filled his prescription must have tainted his medicine, Dr. Whitman decided that Cream was a more likely suspect. Julia Stott served as the star witness against him, saying that Cream had concocted an elaborate but strangely sloppy plan to kill her husband and try to blackmail the pharmacist who'd provided her the prescription. She'd stopped by to see Cream before taking that medicine to her husband, giving Cream the opportunity to add a lethal dose of strychnine to the elixir. Prosecutors pointed to those early letters, the ones in which Cream misspelled his own name, as an apparent attempt to distance himself from the crime. It just seems sinister. No one misspells their own name. And why would you do that if you're legitimately worried that one of your patients might have been murdered? Though Cream insisted that Julia was lying about him, the jury believed her and the prosecution, and Cream was convicted and sentenced to life behind bars. This is where the killings could have stopped, but they didn't, because 10 years later, in 1891, Cream was released from prison. He had long accused Julia Stott of lying on the stand and had convinced enough well-placed allies to vouch for him that he was granted executive clemency by Illinois Governor Joseph Pfeiffer. By this point, Cream's father had died, but his siblings made a point to assure the governor that Thomas would likely move to England or Scotland where he could set up shop with a clean slate and be no further trouble to anyone. They were only half right. After Thomas Cream was released from a Chicago prison, he spent a few weeks with his family in Canada as he readied for his trip overseas. His siblings found his post-prison behavior downright disturbing. He had always had a lazy eye, which gave him an odd, unfocused look. But after his 10 years behind bars, something seemed loose in Cream's head. He looked downright sinister. More concerning was his behavior. He was wild and hot-tempered. The family had the means to put him aboard a ship to London that would arrive in days, but because Cream's behavior was so erratic, they put him on a slower moving vessel, thinking that the longer travel time and the exposure to fresh air that came with it would do him some good. When he got to London, it was truly a fresh start for him. As author Amy Stewart said in a chat about the case hosted by a Harvard bookstore, I think it speaks a lot to one thing about that era, which is that that was a time where you could move and leave your past behind. We we didn't have ID cards. We didn't have social security numbers. We didn't have photo identification of any kind. Even the police, if the London police wanted to alert the Chicago police about something, they were giving descriptions. And it's very easy to forge documents if you need to forge documents. So the fact that he keeps moving is very much what a criminal at that time could do to get away with their crimes. Cream helped his cause with a slight name tweak as well. 
instead of going by Thomas N. Cream, as he had in Canada and the United States, he went by Thomas Neal. This helped him thwart being identified by eagle-eyed newspaper readers who had seen stories about his conviction and release reprinted in publications worldwide, because that's one database that had evolved a good bit since the 19th century. Wire services, like the Associated Press, were decades old by then, and crime stories were the bread and butter of most newspapers, meaning that Dr. Cream was fairly well-known. But Dr. Neal was not. Within months of the new doctor's arrival in London, the first body fell. Ellen Donworth was a 19-year-old sex worker in the Lambeth district, where she would disappear with customers for 15 minutes at a time. On October 13, 1891, Donworth suddenly fell face-first onto the pavement. A man who had been standing outside a pub saw her cut and bruised face and walked her home. Then she started to spasm. A medical assistant rushed to her side and recognized the convulsions as symptoms of strychnine poisoning. He bundled her up and rushed her to the hospital over her protests. She seemed to know she was dying and wanted to do so at home. She was gone before her carriage reached St. Thomas Hospital. She had managed to convey an important detail before she died. A tall, dark, cross-eyed man had given her a drink not long before she'd fallen sick, and the drink had had a white substance in it. When the contents of Donworth's stomach were tested, strychnine was confirmed, but no one had seen Donworth in the company of a tall, dark, cross-eyed man, and she was but a lonely sex worker who must have been depressed, so the assumption was that she'd taken her own life. But letters to authorities turned up suggesting she'd been murdered, which did reopen the case briefly, but investigators focused on a man who had supposedly tried to get another woman to drink something laced with white powder— a move the suspect, a jeweler, insisted was just a joke in bad taste, and the charges didn't stick. Donworth's case was closed. A week later, another woman died. From a video posted by True Crime, Man's Dark Imagination. Matilda Clover, 27 years old, brown-eyed and slightly buck-toothed, lived at 27 Lambeth Road with her two-year-old son, landlords Mr. and Mrs. Voles, and a servant girl named Lucy Rose. Rose found Matilda violently seizing. In between the fits that ravaged her body, Matilda claimed that a man she knew as Fred had poisoned her by giving her four pills he promised would help keep her healthy, a concern for a sex worker like herself. But the examining doctor knew Clover was prone to drink, so he dismissed her claims of poisoned pills and decided that her death was related to alcoholism. Never mind that Matilda had actively been trying to get better, according to historian Alan G. Gothrow. Understanding that her life needed adjustments in order to take care of her son, she started down a path to recovery. Matilda had been seeing a Dr. Graham for her alcoholism, and he prescribed for her a sedative named bromide of potassium. Dr. Graham said Matilda must have mixed alcohol with his sedative prescription, causing her death. Even though Matilda's symptoms were the same as Ellen Donworth's, one was cataloged as suicide and the other as alcohol poisoning. Yet similar letters were circulating claiming that both women had been murdered. Letters sent by an M. Malone to two prominent members of society, a Dr. William Broadbent 
and a high-focus aristocrat, Lord Russell, demanded £2,500 for both in order to keep the information secret that they were responsible for Clover's death. This seemed strange since authorities did not consider Clover a murder victim at the time. At first, nothing came of these letters. Thomas Cream, meanwhile, became engaged to a British woman named Laura Sabatini, who was 20 years younger than he. In a letter convincing Sabatini's mother to allow the marriage, Cream promised that he would take good care of her daughter and that he was, quote, free of all vicious habits, end quote. About the same time, he was summoned back to Canada for the final disbursement of his late father's estate. He boarded the SS Sarnia back home, where his fellow passengers were disturbed by his constant drinking and disparaging talk about women. A salesman named William Seller later told officials that Cream was restless and excitable the entire voyage, a bad man with no refinement and an utter absence of morality. Once in Quebec City with his family, he got the last money due to him from his father's estate and also persuaded the equivalent of a 19th century pharmaceutical rep to provide him with a bunch of quote-unquote medications. After two months in Canada, he boarded another ship back to London in March of 1892. The next month, two women died the same night in Lambeth. Alice Marsh and Emma Shrivel lived in the same boarding house on Stamford Street. It so happened that not long before the women collapsed in agony, a police constable had noticed a man leaving their front door. The man was tall and cross-eyed, wearing a top hat and overcoat. While Marsh died before she could tell Constable George Cumley what had happened to her, Shrivel lived long enough to describe a man who had given the women elongated pills that he promised would help thwart venereal disease and understandable concern for their profession. Since Cumley had coincidentally seen a man leaving the home earlier, he was able to ask, was it the gentleman you let out at a quarter to two with glasses on? Yes, Shrivel said, she knew him as Fred. He was bald under that top hat, she added. Even with all this information, the double deaths at first were attributed to bad tinned salmon, which was common at the time. I found dozens of articles about the dangers of eating tinned salmon in 1892. People were falling ill left and right from the stuff. It was so common, in fact, that one of the stories I found about multiple people dying of food poisoning was under the headline, Tinned Salmon Again. Luckily, one of the doctors on hand was familiar with the waves in which strychnine poisoning hit and was suspicious enough to have the women's stomachs tested as well as the remains of the tinned salmon found in their rooms. The stomachs were full of strychnine, but the salmon was not. It seemed that Shrivel's story about a man feeding the women pills of God knows what was true. Dr. Thomas Stevenson, one of Britain's top forensic investigators, testified at a death inquest that both women had been poisoned. By this point, too, Ellen Donworth's death was recognized as possibly connected to Marsh and Shrivels. Matilda Clover's, however, was still attributed to alcoholism. Because this series of killings came on the heels of the Jack the Ripper slayings, the last of which happened in early 1891, the general public was furious that Scotland Yard had no suspects. It seemed like police were a bunch of fumbling idiots who couldn't do their jobs. 
It didn't help that the first Sherlock Holmes tale had been written around the same time, A Study in Scarlet, had debuted in 1887, while the follow-up tale, The Sign of the Four, was released in 1890. In the stories, Holmes always upstaged the Scotland Yard yokels. Even though it was fiction, the real Bobbies found it humiliating. Scotland Yard sent its best and brightest to try and halt the killings, and once they did, it wasn't long before pieces of a sinister puzzle began falling into place. Interviewing neighbors of the known victims, they learned about the death of Matilda Clover, whose body was soon exhumed. Testing showed that she, too, had been poisoned with strychnine. Looking into her death led investigators to the blackmail letters that had been written to upper-crust society men threatening to pin her murder on them. At first, those letters had been disregarded because they seemed like a hoax when the death wasn't a murder, but now that it was a murder, investigators recognized those letters were evidence. And they began closing in on Cream, whom they still knew as Dr. Neal, because his name had started to come up as someone linked to several of the victims and who aligned with the description of the tall, cross-eyed fellow that Constable Comley had seen leaving the scene of one of the crimes. One investigator, Sergeant Patrick McIntyre of Scotland Yard, managed to Columbo routine his way into getting a sample of Dr. Neal's handwriting, which matched the distinctive handwriting in the multiple blackmail letters. Neal was charged with extortion and kept in custody to await trial. This is Greg Ross, who covered the Lambeth Poisoner in one of his final podcast episodes in 2021 on the Futility Closet. Documents found in his room established his real name, Thomas Neal Cream, and a background in North America. So Inspector Frederick Smith Jarvis headed west to investigate. Armed with the doctor's real surname, Jarvis uncovered all of the doctor's checkered past in both the U.S. and Canada. He learned of his marriage to Flora Brooks and of her mysterious death after taking pills he had shipped to her. He learned of the murder trial in Chicago that should have landed him in prison for life, as well as the other mysterious deaths he'd been associated with but never convicted of. By the time Jarvis got back to England, he had a trove of what he considered evidence, though at the time, it wasn't clear if that evidence would be allowed into trial by the judge overseeing the case. That's because, at this point in history, there hadn't been strong precedent for what was called similar fact evidence, as Job explained. In other words, you can be tried for one offense, but on charged but related similar offenses can be brought in as evidence to corroborate. So in other words, Cream's on trial for one murder, but he's defending himself against four. The judge allowed this, and it was an incredibly important ruling. That ruling, which, by the way, was never appealed and was cited in cases for decades afterward, was one nail in Cream's coffin. The other was a woman named Louisa Harvey. Harvey was a sex worker whose name had been mentioned in some of the blackmail letters as a murder victim. Try as they might, though, investigators with Scotland Yard hadn't been able to track down the details of this death. When Harvey read her own name in a newspaper as one of Cream's purported victims, she stepped forward to tell her story. A woman he thought he'd murdered actually had uh, fooled him. Uh, he thought he'd watched her take uh, the medicine. Uh, they were on the Thames Embankment. This was uh, Lou Harvey, and she fooled him. 
uh, was kind of dim gas lighting on the uh, walkway and uh, she dropped the pills after he and he made her he checked her hands and he was satisfied she'd taken them well she testifies at his trial normally a sex worker's word against that of a doctor wouldn't have gone far given the prejudices of the time but louisa was a strong witness since her brush with death which she'd been leery enough to avoid but hadn't fully comprehended until cream was on trial she had moved away from london given up sex work and gotten married She was using a different name in her day-to-day life, but had her husband's support when she came forward with her tale about Dr. Cream. It helped ensure his conviction. On November 15, 1892, Cream was ushered to the gallows. Years later, his executioner would claim that just before the trapdoor opened beneath him, Cream had begun a confession with the words, I am Jack, as in the Ripper. As such, Cream's name is sometimes on the list of possible Ripper suspects, though the author Job said that's unlikely. For starters, the MOs were completely different, but more importantly, Cream was in an Illinois prison serving time for the death of Daniel Stott when the Ripper terrorized Whitechapel. In the end, Cream hanged for just one murder, though he'd been previously convicted of another and is suspected of committing 10 in all. In each case, his victim had trusted him, implicitly, willingly taking the poison that he had passed off as medicine. He would go down in history as one of the most fiendish killers of the Victorian era. To research the story, I read The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream by Dean Job, which he sent me because he's a mensch. I also watched slash listened to several talks given by Job and other authors who've explored the case. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. Crimes of the Centuries. 